Hello, and welcome to the Pediatric Anesthesia Journal's featured Article of the Month podcast for June 2022. My name is Dr. Devnath Chatterjee, and I'm one of the journal's education editors. This month's featured article is entitled, Outcomes Following Formation of a Dedicated Pediatric Liver Transplant Anesthesia Team. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome the corresponding author of this article, Dr. Julie Drobish, a pediatric anesthesiologist at St. Louis Children's Hospital, and the senior author, Dr. Timothy Welch, a pediatric anesthesiologist at Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome to this podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Deb. So let's get started. The formation of a dedicated liver transplant anesthesia team for adults has been shown to improve patient outcomes. You report the patient outcomes following the formation of a dedicated pediatric liver transplant anesthesia team. What prompted you and your colleagues to conduct the study? Well, I think, you know, similar to with most clinical research questions, uh, this one for us was born out of our clinical practice. In other words, you know, we saw what was appearing to be a beneficial impact of the implementation of our care model. So we decided to ask if the data that we were collecting supported that assumption. As you mentioned, the existing adult data in this area, you know, suggests that dedicated anesthesiologist involvement can really have an impact on outcome. So we were inspired to look into our pediatric data to see if that relationship would hold. And I think, you know, the challenge with pediatrics in general is that we're dealing with a, you know, much smaller case volume than our adult counterparts. So the, the challenge was amassing enough clinical data to show some associations. You know, we, so we had as a team decided to maintain an internal quality improvement database that the six of us on the team would input patient-specific data from our cases into. And as I would review that over time, the first thing that jumped out to me was the experience level of the provider was increasing dramatically. You know, based on the size of our program, and we had 28 to 30 anesthesiologists on staff, typically, most people weren't really doing that many cases. Um, and as we started focusing on a very small team, we noticed the number of cases per provider went up quite a bit, and that obviously has benefit. We also noticed that most of our patients, actually nearly all of them, were being extubated in the operating room. And that was a, a pretty significant difference, both from prior at our own institution, but also compared to national norms. I think uh, we had also begun using some evolving regional anesthetic techniques, and this was in, in conjunction with our pain service. I think what I noticed as, a, as an anesthesiologist coming through the ICU is that my critical care colleagues were letting us know that their patients seemed to be a lot more comfortable um, after transplant than they had used to been with you know, lower requirement for opioids and PCAs. I think the, the final thing I noticed is that we were using less blood products overall. Um, I don't know in a significantly different statistical difference, but it just seemed to be looking at our internal data, we were using less products. And I, I, I surmise that was likely to the fact in some way related to the use of tag monitoring and trying to decide what we used with more evidence behind it, just instead of surgeon request. So I approached Julie and said, you know, I think we need to investigate if these hunches we have are are actually valid. And if we have some signal here that our, our team structure is, is having this benefit to our patients. And so the two objectives for me were to evaluate if forming our dedicated team had a beneficial impact on measurable clinical outcomes, but kind of as an extension to serve as a proof of concept that this model could be applied in comparably sized children's hospitals. If you go to Texas Children's, Boston Children's, Colorado, where you are, having a dedicated team is pretty typical. 
but on kind of smaller and mid-sized programs, that's not the case. I think I wanted to show that it can be done in an economically viable way. That makes sense. Can you tell us a little bit more about the historical controls and did they use a standardized anesthetic protocol? It's a great question. Uh, before I answer that, I think we need to briefly touch on a methodologic caveat. You know, anytime we're using historical controls in a comparative clinical effectiveness type of study, there are unavoidable challenges and risks of bias that come with that, as you might imagine. But it's really the only realistic, feasible approach. And frankly, it's what's done for virtually all types of these kind of studies. So, you know, the concern is that if you implement a series of process changes at the institutional level, it's, it's impossible to quarantine a concurrent control group away from an intervention group because so many of the interventions are going to spill over or contaminate both groups. So there's really no way to do a true kind of prospective randomized design like this. There are some approaches where investigators will randomize at the level of the center. So they'll have, you know, hospital A apply a certain care pathway and hospital B apply another and then compare. But, you know, the, the cost and logistics of doing something like that for such a small kind of focused research question was really prohibitive and precluded that. So we decided to take a historical control patient group um, as our cohort. And they were patients that, you know, as Dr. Drobish can explain to you later, were, were a pretty comparable demographic, clinical and disease severity characteristics. Some, some differences, but not, not really significant. And they were cared for in the period of time immediately before implementation of our dedicated transplant team. That you know, kind of historic era, there was no standardized anesthetic protocol at all. Uh, providers just kind of left to their own discretion what they wanted to do. And that was actually the reason um, to, to develop a team like this is to reduce that variance in, in such a high risk, low frequency case. I think one of the important things to note is that we, one of the key sources of variation that we were able to eliminate was uh, the concern that there were maybe unmeasured surgeon factors that were influencing our outcomes. But in, indeed, we had the same surgical staff for the duration of the study. There was no appreciable change in surgical technique and really no other concurrent secular trends in the hospital, in the ICU, or in anything else that you know would have influenced our results. So we, we can't claim that there was any causality and patient benefit, but I think you can surmise with a, a high degree of certainty that some of the interventions are clearly attributable to the anesthesia component of care. So how did you go about forming this liver transplant anesthesia team? Historically at St. Louis Children's Hospital, um, anesthesia for liver transplant was provided by all members of our faculty irrespective of their own interest or of their proficiency or competence with it. Basically, if you were on call and a liver transplant was, was posted, you were doing it. And certainly no standardization of approach and no real way to assess if there was variance in our kind of outcome metrics wasn't really being looked at formally. When I, when I became the medical director of the transplant service, the first thing I did was meet with our transplant surgeon and our hepatologist and ask them what our team could do to help them. We didn't really have a team, but we had a, you know, a director assigned. And without any hesitation, both of them said, you have to create a dedicated team for us. So we, we settled on a rotating one-week, 24-7 call structure. During that week, the designated transplant anesthesiologist would do any primary or redo cases, any take-back cases, for example, if they needed a delayed you know, abdominal closure, something of that nature. We also attended their, um, their listing meetings, which were you know, new consultations were discussed. And any patients that um, needed to be seen by anesthesia for any reason, would, we would do that. We determined based on our annual case numbers that we needed about six people on that team to have a, the right balance between case volume, but also you know, to avoid excessive call burden. 
And the way we selected the members is we, we solicited our entire group for people that had interest in it and then allowed our, our anesthesia leadership and the surgeons to kind of vet that list and narrow it down to people that they wanted to, to work with. I think the other thing is that, you know, doing something like this does come with some administrative and financial costs. You know, I approached our departmental leadership for additional uh, compensation for our team members because they, you know, they were taking a substantial uh, amount of call commitment for this. We also were able to negotiate the hospital to, to fund an academic or administrative day for people to attend these meetings. And I think the uh, the way we were able to justify or support that additional cost is we had our liver transplant attending cover some general and backup calls during the week kind of overlapping that to, to support it. So going back to your study, what were the results and did any of the findings surprise you? So I personally was most surprised by the lack of significance in the PICU length of stay. Um, given that we knew the extubation rates were much higher and that in the adult literature that had correlated with a shorter ICU stay as well, we expected that an extubated patient would spend one or two fewer days in the PICU, theoretically corresponding to the amount of time that they may have been on a ventilator, sedated, and that adding to their overall PICU stay. Well, I guess what we discovered is that there are, um, of course, many factors that determine the uh, length of stay in the PICU. And while extubation was theoretically one of them, um, there are too many other factors um, to allow the extubation rate to significantly impact the overall length of stay, at least in our patient population. So looking at your data, something that stood out, and you mentioned this already, was that 80% of your patients were extubated by the dedicated liver transplant anesthesia team. This is higher than the other recent case reports or case series of fast-tracking pediatric liver transplants. Can you comment on this? Yes. So the desire to extubate as many patients as safely possible was a joint decision between both the anesthesia and surgery teams. Um, in discussing this, we all hoped that that would improve the postoperative course for several reasons. Um, one reason is that positive pressure ventilation could impair venous blood flow, both through the liver and also um, venous return from the IVC. And so we hoped that by eliminating that, that we would be uh, less impairment potentially for graft function and also better um, hemodynamics as far as uh, overall blood volume and, and venous return. And then furthermore, the, there's the sedation impact of, of intubated patients um, being more sedated and the sedatives potentially causing hypotension, um, requiring additional fluids or vasopressors. Um, and our surgeons in particular get very nervous about excessive use of vasopressors um, because that can cause hepatic vasoconstriction and thereby putting the patient potentially at risk for hepatic artery thrombosis. Some other factors too, Dave, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to say this gently, but I think there's kind of a pervasive older generation approach that sick patients warrant returning to the ICU intubated. And I, I think that that's not necessarily correct. And I think shifting to a smaller team uh, allowed us to kind of reverse that local inertia. I'm an intensivist as well, and I take a more nuanced approach to extubation decision-making. I think that really shouldn't relate to what case was done or the age of the patient or the surgeon preference. It has to do with the question that is this patient's physiology improved with positive pressure ventilation or worsened with positive pressure ventilation. So 
you know, in a patient with decompensated LV failure or in shock with high metabolic demand, I keep them intubated until the dust settles because that ventilation is assisting their hemodynamics. On the other hand, if their physiology is improved by not being on positive pressure ventilation, like a child with cable pulmonary connection, Fontan physiology, or in this case, a liver transplant patient with tenuous balance of, you know, filling pressures and SVR, then I do everything I can to get them extubated as soon as safety permits. So I think the point is that with a smaller team, it's easier to develop a group of people that have comfort with making that kind of decision-making in the OR instead of defaulting to just the, the standard approach, which was leave them sedated, leave the tube in, drop them off. That totally makes sense. The dedicated liver team also used less blood products. And how were they able to achieve this? So I think this uh, has some similarities to the extubation goal in that we discussed specific parameters um, with a clear target hemoglobin of eight to 10, um, you know, with discussion with the, the surgeons as well. We also were able to have constant communication with the surgeons throughout the case. And I think this is another aspect that improved with having a small team of people that we had that level of familiarity and respect for each other that made it a bit easier to, um, to have that continuous con communication. The other aspect with the increased familiarity with the cases themselves is that I think that helped us to stick to that goal a little bit. Um, it is possible, you know, as, as Tim was kind of saying, these are, these are big cases, there's sick patients, um, there's ongoing bleeding with vascular anastomoses and impaired coagulation. And I think there's a tendency for many anesthesiologists um, facing a case like that to potentially over transfuse and uh, in hopes of you know, making sure that the patient is safe. However, with having increased experience, I think we were able to limit the transfusions a little bit um, under circumstances where we, had, we could discuss with the surgeon and, and understand the bleeding on the field and constantly also be checking lab values so that we could stick to that transfusion goal that we set out to have. I would add a few other things to that, Dave, which is, and at least in my practice, I think we had two um, technologies available to our team that, it, at least in, in my case, informed my practice quite a bit. The first is in our evolving use of, you know, point-of-care viscoelastic hemostatic testing. In our institution, that was TEG. Other centers use Rotem. But the principle is the same, you know, to really obtain a, a real-time in vivo assessment of clot strength and stability. Um, it, we didn't, in our center, develop any protocol where we mandated rigid adherence to any TEG parameters to guide transfusion decision-making. But what we did do, I think, collectively in our team and with the surgeon's consent, said we're not going to transfuse hemostatic products unless there's a clear clinical evidence of a coagulopathy on lab testing. Um, and that's a departure from historic norms. You know, a lot of times if patients looked a little oozy, we would just, you know, give them plasma with no real explanation of whether that was indicated or not. That's definitely not the case anymore. The other thing for me, and I, I don't know if many of my partners did this, but we, uh, at the time the liver team was developing, got access to an esophageal Doppler device. And, you know, I, I used this pretty extensively in the absence of a lot of varices to assess if the patients, you know, really had a low index stroke volume and had dynamic assessment that uh, preload reserve was inadequate. I never gave any volume to patients unless those parameters indicated to me that they did. And I certainly didn't give any PRBCs unless there was evidence of impaired oxygen delivery. So I think, you know, one thing that Julie and I learned is by having a small team, you're able to kind of better educate the members of that team about appropriate parameters in which to do things. 
And that makes it a lot easier than when you're trying to push out that kind of decision-making to a group of 30. So based on the findings of your study with improved patient outcomes, do you plan to use this strategy for other patient populations? I'm sure all surgeons would love to have their specialized teams. So the question is, is there a way to balance these requests from surgeons with our ability to take care of a wide range of patients? So I would agree that most surgeons would love to have specialized teams and these requests do in fact uh, come through uh, from time to time at St. Louis Children's. We currently have dedicated teams for neurosurgery that requires intraoperative MRI use, mainly because that requires a little bit of extra training and it makes sense to just have a smaller group for that. And then we had a fairly newly formed bariatric surgery group for which we also created a team and a, a protocol to go with that. But as you mentioned, it's, it's just not feasible for all situations, um, especially in a group that's a little bit more you know, modestly sized or kind of a medium group, I would say, um, of pediatric anesthesiologists. And a lot of people actually have interest in, in the variety of cases as well. And so one way we have addressed that issue is by creating some more protocols than we used to have. And so in particular for scoliosis surgery, uh, for our complex urologic procedures, and for kidney transplants, we have somewhat recently developed protocols. And I think that does help just a bit for the, you know, a provider who maybe hasn't done one of those cases as recently to feel a bit more comfortable with the setup and expectations. So before we wrap up this discussion, any concluding remarks or next steps? Well, as, as we kind of discussed before, you know, the, the extubation was the main thing and that um, did not actually lead to any difference in the ICU length of stay or the total hospital length of stay. And so this is something that I do actually intend to look at further um, here, both with in conjunction with the surgical team and the ICU team to try to maybe identify what factors are the primary determinants of that PICU stay and to see if we can do anything to help improve that, um, along with our pain team as well, who follows these patients afterwards. Thank you so much, Julie and Tim. This has been a lovely discussion. We appreciate you taking the time to chat, and we look forward to more contributions from you and your team. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This wraps up our featured Article of the Month podcast for June 2022. This article will be available for free on the journal's website soon. Please follow us on Twitter on at PD Anesthesia. Until next month's featured article of the month podcast, cheers.